This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story by Shirley Jackson called The Lottery. 77th year I've been in the lottery, old man Warner said as he went through the crowd. 77th time. The Lottery was chosen by A.M. Holmes, who is the author of six novels, including This Book Will Save Your Life and two story collections. She has published a personal history and two short stories in The New Yorker. Hi, A.M. Hi, Deborah. You wrote an introduction to Jackson's collection, The Lottery and Other Stories, and in it you referred to The Lottery as an icon in the history of the American short story. What did you mean by that? You know, I meant several things. I mean, I think The Lottery is a story that is, I think, taught in every American school. And I often think it's taught at a point in in young people's lives where we're just waking up to the oddity of things and, and and the terror that is in everyday life. And so I think it is iconic in the sense that it is a deeply American story, a deeply terrifying story. And it's also a story that after you've read it, you never fully forget it. You know, it kind of comes and goes, but it lingers there. I think it embeds in the, in the, you know, in the young American psyche in some way. I was taught it in a Canadian high school. <laughs> the North American psyche. <laughs> exactly, the North American psyche. It, it was so controversial when it was published uh, back in 1948. Hundreds of people canceled their subscriptions. Hate mail flooded the magazine, um, and it was banned in a lot of places. Without giving away what happens, do you think that that kind of outrage was justified? Well, you know, having had a lot of experience with controversy in my own work, I mean, I think that controversy really means hit a nerve. And I think, you know, America was still at that point, I mean, it was on the cusp of becoming big cities, but it was small towns. It was small towns very much like the small town in the story, much like Bennington, Vermont, where Shirley Jackson lived. And I think... Part of the you know American dream or the American value system is the idea that in small towns, people take care of each other and people have affection for each other. And I think how this story, part of how it builds is you see the interrelationship of all these people. You see how they are aware of each other and sort of, you know, jockeying for position amongst themselves and in the hierarchy of the town. And then there is this dark, dark thread running through the whole thing. And it doesn't name itself until the very end. And I think it's terrifying. I think people reading this story in 1948 would be truly terrifying. It's like, you know, Orson Welles and the, you know, the the radio broadcast or something so unfathomable. And yet we, I think, secretly know it could happen. We'll talk more after the story. Now here's A.M. Holmes reading The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny with the fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely, and the grass was richly green. The people of the village began to gather in the square, between the post office and the bank, around ten o'clock. In some towns, there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 26th. But in this village, where there were only about 300 people, the whole lottery took less than two hours, so it could begin at ten o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. The children assembled first, of course. School was recently over for the summer, and the feeling of liberty sat uneasily on most of them. They tended to gather together quietly for a while before they broke into boisterous play, and their talk was still of the classroom and the teacher, of books and reprimands. Bobby Martin had already stuffed his pockets full of stones, and the other boys soon followed his example, 
selecting the smoothest and roundest stones. Bobby and Harry Jones and Dickie Delacroix, the villagers pronounced his name Delacroix, eventually made a great pile of stones in one corner of the square and guarded it against the raids of the other boys. The girls stood aside, talking among themselves, looking over their shoulders at the boys, and the very small children rolled in the dust or clung to the hands of their older brothers or sisters. Soon the men began to gather, surveying their own children, speaking of planting and rain, tractors and taxes. They stood together, away from the pile of stones in the corner, and their jokes were quiet, and they smiled rather than laughed. The women, wearing faded house dresses and sweaters, came shortly after their menfolk. They greeted one another and exchanged bits of gossip as they went to join their husbands. Soon the women standing by their husbands began to call to their children, and the children came reluctantly, having to be called four or five times. Bobby Martin ducked under his mother's grasping hand and ran, laughing, back to the pile of stones. His father spoke up sharply, and Bobby came quickly and took his place between his father and his oldest brother. The lottery was conducted, as were the square dances, the teenage club, the Halloween program, by Mr. Summers, who had time and energy to devote to civic activities. He was a round-faced, jovial man, and he ran the coal business, and people were sorry for him because he had no children and his wife was a scold. When he arrived in the square carrying the black wooden box, there was a murmur of conversation among the villagers, and he waved and called, "'Little late today, folks!' The postmaster, Mr. Graves, followed him, carrying a three-legged stool, and the stool was put in the center of the square, and Mr. Summers set the black box down on it. The villagers kept their distance, leaving a space between themselves and the stool, and when Mr. Summers said, "'Some of you fellows want to give me a hand?' There was a hesitation before two men, Mr. Martin and his oldest son, Baxter, came forward to hold the box steady on the stool while Mr. Summers stirred up the papers inside it. The original paraphernalia for the lottery had been lost long ago, and the black box now resting on the stool had been put into use even before old man Warner, the oldest man in town, was born. Mr. Summers spoke frequently to the villagers about making a new box, but no one liked to upset even as much tradition as was represented by the black box. There was a story that the present box had been made with some of the pieces of the box that had preceded it, the one that had been constructed when the first people settled down to make a village here. Every year after the lottery, Mr. Summers began talking again about a new box, but every year the subject was allowed to fade off without anything's being done. The black box grew shabbier each year. By now it was no longer completely black, but splintered badly along one side to show the original wood color, and in some places faded or stained. Mr. Martin and his oldest son, Baxter, held the black box securely on the stool until Mr. Summers had stirred the papers thoroughly with his hand. Because so much of the ritual had been forgotten or discarded, Mr. Summers had been successful in having slips of paper substituted for the chips of wood that had been used for generations. Chips of wood, Mr. Summers had argued, had all been very well when the village was tiny, but now that the population was more than 300 and likely to keep on growing, it was necessary to use something that would fit more easily into the black box. The night before the lottery, Mr. Summers and Mr. Graves made up the slips of paper and put them in the box, and it was taken to the safe of Mr. Summers' coal company and locked up until Mr. Summers was ready to take it to the square the next morning. The rest of the year, the box was put away, 
sometimes one place, sometimes another. It had spent one year in Mr. Graves' barn and another year underfoot in the post office, and sometimes it was set on a shelf in the Martin grocery and left there. There was a great deal of fussing to be done before Mr. Summers declared the lottery open. There were the lists to make up of heads of families, heads of households in each family, members of each household in each family. There was the proper swearing-in of Mr. Summers by the postmaster as the official of the lottery. At one time, some people remembered, there had been a recital of some sort, performed by the official of the lottery, a perfunctory, tuneless chant that had been rattled off duly each year. Some people believed that the official of the lottery used to stand just so when he said or sang it. Others believed he was supposed to walk among the people. But years and years ago, this part of the ritual had been allowed to lapse. There had been, also, a ritual salute, which the official of the lottery had had to use in addressing each person who came up to draw from the box. But this had also changed with time, until now it was felt necessary only for the official to speak to each person approaching. Mr. Summers was very good at all this. In his clean white shirt and blue jeans, with one hand resting carelessly on the black box, he seemed very proper and important as he talked interminably to Mr. Graves and the Martins. Just as Mr. Summers finally left off talking and turned to the assembled villagers, Mrs. Hutchinson came hurriedly along the path to the square, her sweater thrown over her shoulders, and slid into place in the back of the crowd. Clean forgot what day it was, she said to Mrs. Delacroix, who stood next to her, and they both laughed softly. Thought my old man was out back stacking wood, Mrs. Hutchinson went on. I looked out the window, and the kids was gone, and then I remembered it was the 27th and came a-running. She dried her hands on her apron, and Mrs. Delacroix said, You're in time, though. They're still talking away up there. Mrs. Hutchinson craned her neck to see through the crowd and found her husband and children standing near the front. She tapped Mrs. Delacroix on the arm as a farewell and began to make her way through the crowd. The people separated good-humoredly to let her through. Two or three people said in voices just loud enough to be heard across the crowd, Here comes your Mrs. Hutchinson. And Bill, she made it after all. Mrs. Hutchinson reached her husband, and Mr. Summers, who had been waiting, said cheerfully, Thought we're going to have to get on without you, Tessie. Mrs. Hutchinson said, grinning, Wouldn't have me leave my dishes in the sink now, would you, Joe? And soft laughter ran through the crowd as the people stirred back into position after Mrs. Hutchinson's arrival. Well, now, Mr. Summers said soberly, Guess we better get started, get this over with, so's we can get back to work. Anybody ain't here? Dunbar, several people said. Dunbar, Dunbar. Mr. Summers consulted his list. Clyde Dunbar, he said. That's right. He broke his leg, hasn't he? Who's drawing for him? Me, I guess, a woman said. And Mr. Summers turned to look at her. Wife draws for her husband, Mr. Summers said. Don't you have a grown boy to do it for you, Janie? Although Mr. Summers and everyone else in the village knew the answer perfectly well, it was the business of the official of the lottery to ask such questions formally. Mr. Summers waited with an expression of polite interest while Mrs. Dunbar answered. Horace is not but 16 yet, Mrs. Dunbar said regretfully. Guess I gotta fill in for the old man this year. Right, Mr. Summers said. He made a note on the list he was holding. Then he asked, Watson boy drawing this year? A tall boy in the crowd raised his hand. Here, he said, I'm drawing for my mother and me. He blinked his eyes nervously and ducked his head as several voices in the crowd said things like, Good fellow, Jack, and glad to see your mother's got a man to do it. Well, Mr. Summers said, guess that's everyone. 
Old man Warner make it? Here, a voice said, and Mr. Summers nodded. A sudden hush fell on the crowd as Mr. Summers cleared his throat and looked at the list. All ready, he called. Now I'll read the names, heads of families first, and the men come up and take a paper out of the box. Keep the paper folded in your hand without looking at it until everyone has had a turn. Everything clear? The people had done it so many times that they only half listened to the directions. Most of them were quiet, wetting their lips, not looking around. Then Mr. Summers raised one hand high and said, Adams? A man disengaged himself from the crowd and came forward. Hi, Steve, Mr. Summers said, and Mr. Adams said, Hi, Joe. They grinned at one another humorlessly and nervously. Then Mr. Adams reached into the black box and took out a folded paper. He held it firmly by one corner as he turned and went hastily back to his place in the crowd, where he stood a little apart from his family, not looking down at his hand. Alan, Mr. Summers said, Anderson, Bentham. Seems like there's no time at all between lotteries anymore, Mrs. Delacroix said to Mrs. Graves in the back row. Seems like we got through with the last one only last week. Time sure goes fast, Mrs. Graves said. Clark, Delacroix. There goes my old man, Mrs. Delacroix said. She held her breath while her husband went forward. Dunbar, Mr. Summers said, and Mrs. Dunbar went steadily to the box while one of the women said, Go on, Janie, and another said, There she goes. We're next, Mrs. Graves said. She watched while Mr. Graves came around from the side of the box, greeted Mr. Summers gravely, and selected a slip of paper from the box. By now, all through the crowd, there were men holding the small folded papers in their large hands, turning them over and over nervously. Mrs. Dunbar and her two sons stood together, Mrs. Dunbar holding the slip of paper. Harbert? Hutchinson? Get up there, Bill, Mrs. Hutchinson said, and the people near her laughed. Jones? They do say, Mr. Adams said to old man Warner, who stood next to him, that over in the North Village, they're talking of giving up the lottery. Old man Warner snorted. Pack of crazy fools, he said. Listening to the young folks, nothing's good enough for them. Next thing you know, they'll be wanting to go back to living in caves. Nobody work anymore. Live that way for a while. Used to be a saying about, lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. First thing you know, we'd all be eating stewed chickweed and acorns. There's always been a lottery, he added petulantly. Bad enough to see young Joe Summers up there joking with everybody. Some places have already quit lotteries, Mrs. Adams said. Nothing but trouble in that, old man Warner said stoutly. Pack of young fools. Martin? And Bobby Martin watched his father go forward. Overdyke? Percy? I wish they'd hurry, Mrs. Dunbar said to her older son. I wish they'd hurry. They're almost through, her son said. You get ready to run tell Dad, Mrs. Dunbar said. Mr. Summers called his own name and then stepped forward precisely and selected a slip from the box. Then he called, Warner? Seventy-seventh year I've been in the lottery, old man Warner said as he went through the crowd. Seventy-seventh time. Watson? The tall boy came awkwardly through the crowd. Someone said, Don't be nervous, Jack. And Mr. Summers said, Take your time, son. Zanini? After that, there was a long pause, a breathless pause, until Mr. Summers, holding his slip of paper in the air, said, All right, fellows. For a minute, no one moved, and then all the slips of paper were opened. Suddenly, all the women began to speak at once, saying, Who is it? Who's got it? Is it the Dunbars? Is it the Watsons? Then the voices began to say, It's Hutchinson. It's Bill. Bill Hutchinson's got it. 
Go tell your father, Mrs. Dunbar said to her older son. People began to look around to see the Hutchinsons. Bill Hutchinson was standing quiet, staring down at the paper in his hand. Suddenly, Tessie Hutchinson shouted to Mr. Summers, You didn't give him time enough to take any paper he wanted. I saw you. It wasn't fair. Be a good sport, Tessie, Mrs. Delacroix called, and Mrs. Graves said, All of us took the same chance. Shut up, Tessie, Bill Hutchinson said. Well, everyone, Mr. Summers said, that was done pretty fast, and now we've got to be hurrying a little more to get done in time. He consulted his next list. Bill, he said, you draw for the Hutchinson family. You got any other households in the Hutchinsons? There's Don and Eva, Mrs. Hutchinson yelled. Make them take their chance. Daughters draw with their husbands' families, Tessie, Mr. Summers said gently. You know that as well as anyone else. It wasn't fair, Tessie said. I guess not, Joe, Bill Hutchinson said regretfully. My daughter draws with her husband's family. That's only fair. And I've got no other family except the kids. Then as far as drawing for families is concerned, it's you, Mr. Summers said in explanation. And as far as drawing for households is concerned, that's you too, right? Right, Bill Hutchinson said. How many kids, Bill? Mr. Summers asked formally. Three, Bill Hutchinson said. There's Bill Jr. and Nancy and little Dave and Tessie and me. All right, then, Mr. Summers said. Harry, you got their tickets back? Mr. Graves nodded and held up the slips of paper. Put them in the box, then, Mr. Summers directed. Take bills and put it in. I think we ought to start over, Mrs. Hutchinson said, quietly as she could. I tell you, it wasn't fair. You didn't give him time enough to choose. Everybody saw that. Mr. Graves had selected the five slips and put them in the box, and he dropped all the papers but those onto the ground, where the breeze caught them and lifted them off. Listen, everybody, Mrs. Hutchinson was saying to the people around her. Ready, Bill? Mr. Summers asked. And Bill Hutchinson, with one quick glance around at his wife and children, nodded. Remember, Mr. Summers said, take the slips and keep them folded until each person has taken one. Harry, you help little Dave. Mr. Graves took the hand of the little boy who came willingly with him up to the box. Take a paper out of the box, Davy, Mr. Summers said. Davy put his hand into the box and laughed. Take just one paper, Mr. Summers said. Harry, you hold it for him. Mr. Graves took the child's hand and removed the folded paper from the tight fist and held it while little Dave stood next to him and looked up at him, wonderingly. Nancy next, Mr. Summers said. Nancy was twelve, and her school friends breathed heavily as she went forward switching her skirt and took a slip daintily from the box. Bill Jr., Mr. Summers said, and Billy, his face red and his feet over large, nearly knocked the box over as he got a paper out. Tessie, Mr. Summers said. She hesitated for a minute looking around defiantly, and then set her lips and went up to the box. She snatched a paper out and held it behind her. Bill, Mr. Summers said, and Bill Hutchinson reached into the box and felt around, bringing his hand out at last with a slip of paper in it. The crowd was quiet. A girl whispered, I hope it's not Nancy, and the sound of the whisper reached the edges of the crowd. It's not the way it used to be, old man Warner said clearly. People ain't the way they used to be. All right, Mr. Summers said. Open the papers. Harry, you open little Dave's. Mr. Graves opened the slip of paper, and there was a general sigh through the crowd as he held it up, and everyone could see that it was blank. Nancy and Bill Jr. opened theirs at the same time, and both beamed and laughed, 
turning around to the crowd and holding their slips of paper above their heads. Tessie, Mr. Summers said. There was a pause, and then Mr. Summers looked at Bill Hutchinson, and Bill unfolded his paper and showed it. It was blank. It's Tessie, Mr. Summers said, and his voice was hushed. Show us her paper, Bill. Bill Hutchinson went over to his wife and forced the slip of paper out of her hand. It had a black spot on it, the black spot Mr. Summers had made the night before with the heavy pencil in the coal company office. Bill Hutchinson held it up, and there was a stir in the crowd. All right, folks, Mr. Summers said. Let's finish quickly. Although the villagers had forgotten the ritual and lost the original black box, they still remembered to use stones. The pile of stones the boys had made earlier was ready. There were stones on the ground with the blowing scraps of paper that had come out of the box. Mrs. Delacroix selected a stone so large she had to pick it up with both hands and turn to Mrs. Dunbar. Come on, she said. Hurry up. Mrs. Dunbar had small stones in both hands, and she said, gasping for breath, I can't run at all. You'll have to go ahead and I'll catch up with you. The children had stones already and someone gave little Davy Hutchinson a few pebbles. Tessie Hutchinson was in the center of a cleared space by now, and she held her hands out desperately as the villagers moved in on her. It isn't fair, she said. A stone hit her on the side of the head. Old Man Warner was saying, Come on, come on, everyone. Steve Adams was in the front of the crowd of villagers, with Mrs. Graves beside him. It isn't fair, it isn't right, Mrs. Hutchinson screamed and then they were upon her. That was A.M. Holmes reading The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. The story is available in The Lottery and Other Stories, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. A.M., she wrote this story 60 years ago, and as we've said, it's been taught in every school, it's been adapted for movies, it was turned into a ballet. Has it lost any of its shock value? I don't really think so. I think there's something that is so creepy about it, that really just cuts right through. I mean, I can imagine that in 1948 it was even creepier, but it gives you the chills. You read mm-hmm. this story now and you still think on a pure writing level, you wonder, how did she do that? You know, because you don't fully see it, you know, as it evolves. There's no expected steps taken, and yet each one she takes, it, you never fall off either. You never say, oh, that's not plausible. And even just little bits of language, you know, the grass was richly green. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so, in a way, specific and slightly odd, but not. And she really does. I feel like she paints a picture. There's like, it's as though she's making a watercolor that gets darker and darker until all of a sudden it started off as. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. 
It's this bucolic small town. And by the end, there's no color left in it. It's a black wash. It's uh, little details like the the boys in the beginning looking for the the smoothest stones. Yes. Which you realize at the end is is they're looking for something that's actually going to draw out this death. You know, a, a big sharp stone is going to kill her faster. Right. And then you can't decide if her friend who picks up the one that's so heavy she has to take it with two hands <laughs> is doing her a favor or is it some yeah. inner hostility between the two <laughs> women. And the other creepy thing that, you know, someone gives her littlest son some pebbles. Yeah. So he also will participate in this. Mm-hmm. Why do you think um, Mrs. Hutchinson offers up her daughter. I mean, no one no one has the, the emotional responses you expect. Here's a mother saying, ah, oh, make her draw. You know? <laughs> I think it's terror. I think it's fear. And I think despite what we think a mother would do, there can be that moment where she's just, you know. I mean, is she as callous? Is she somehow being punished because she's a bad person in Shirley Jackson's mind? I don't think so. I no. mean, I think it's I think it's all about the twists and turns of pathology and of of what the mind will do and what people will do in a certain situation. And I don't think, I mean, it sounds wrong to say, you know, I don't think she's a bad person for offering her daughter up. (laughs) The whole thing is wrong, you know, that she's about to be stoned to death by her, you know, friends and family. But it is interesting and revealing of her fear Mm -hmm. and of her stress and that she's somehow willing to offer that. I mean, you could, you know, play it out and say, Say they accepted the daughter, how would she, you know, what would she be like the next day? I mean, I always think, you know, that's the interesting thing. And Tessie would never recover. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, you know, Jackson said that she got all these letters complaining about the story, but she also got a number of letters from people asking where they could go to watch the lottery. (laughs) But that's like, on the one hand, I am not that thing. I would never do such a thing. Oh, but what channel is it on? (laughs) What need does it fill to, to offer that up and to bear witness to it? Mm-hmm. You know, I think she's an amazing writer. And I, I also think about how without naming this thing, she does something that very few writers are able to do. I think of Raymond Carver as someone who does it, who uses very simple language to create a world that is so otherworldly that it almost has like its own sort of smoke floating over it. Mm-hmm. And yet you look line by line and word by word and there's nothing odd or extraordinary in the sentence structure or in any one specific detail. It's the cumulative role of it in some way that's just, I don't know, it's it's astounding. She's often cited as an influence on people like Stephen King. Probably now stories like this or, or books like this would be stuck in a certain part of the bookstore under yeah. sci-fi or, you know, some form of genre fiction. Does that make any sense for her? Well, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking about it this morning and I was thinking about the writer Angela Carter. Mm -hmm. Um, And Angela Carter was, you know, an English writer who wrote things that were very sometimes surrealistic, sometimes very political, sometimes very, very strange. And I remember when she came to teach at the University of Iowa, she said to the students, does anyone here write science fiction? And they all sort of snickered as though, you know, we would never go to Iowa if you wrote science fiction because that's (laughs) illegitimate. That doesn't – that's not fiction, you know. but I think that people like Angela Carter and some writers like Joyce Carol Oates who really writes across genre mm-hmm. um, and others are working in this area. And I think it's kind of unfortunate how stratified things have become. You know, it's, it's, it's a little too rigid and specific at the moment. 
there have been so many interpretations of the story. You know, yeah. Marxist, Freudian, all that. Yeah. Do you think any of those are valid? Is it meant to be symbolic or well, metaphorical you know, in some way? I was looking at all that yesterday and I got so angry in the way that as a person who's a writer gets really angry at interpretations of things. Hmm. To my mind, honestly, there's nothing worse than a way too sophisticated interpretation of, you know, Dickie Delacroix, you know, of the cross. Right. And therefore, there's that element. And there's all these other things. Mr. Graves. And- yes, exactly. But I'm suspicious of any attempt to, I don't know, read beyond, you know, what happens to you as a reader on the most sort of personal level when you read something. As you said earlier, people have also attacked you for for, um, <laughs> for, for similar else. things in your work, for, for yeah. writing sort of uh, about cruelty in a, mm-hmm. in a way that it seems sort of banal and so on. Is that something that makes you more sympathetic to her writing? I don't know. I mean, I think about it in the sense that I am definitely somebody who is, you know, really interested in why people do what they do and what it means to them. And I feel like I often work very hard to not let my own discomfort with what I'm writing stop me from writing it. I think the goal as a writer is, on the one hand, I'm not thinking, oh, I can't wait to write something really upsetting. Boy, that's Mm going to be Mm -hmm. fun. It's hard for me to write. I mean, it's not like it's a pleasant experience. But I think it also doesn't mean that you don't do it. You know, I'm looking at these characters. I'm looking to see what happens in their worlds. I think Shirley Jackson was really thinking a lot about who we are as people and how we behave. Um, you know, I think about the sculptor David Smith, who made you know these enormous metal pieces. That a lot of his technology came out of World War II welding technology. Talked a lot about how no artist can create outside of their time. And I think you know. The end of the 1940s was a very strange time in America. It was just Mm -hmm. the end of this war. It was a time as we were coming out of, you know, this incredibly patriotic war thinking and war mind into the 1950s, which was a very peculiar, the Cold War, you know, McCarthyism. There was a lot bubbling under the surface in this country. Also still reeling from a lot of death and destruction and and inhumanity. Yeah, exactly. And and, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I that's the kind of thing that interests me a lot is to look at it that way, um, sort of historically and economically in some way, rather than on a Freudian Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> Jackson published this story when she was 31, and she lived for another 17 years. She wrote six novels, two memoirs, probably 100 stories. Yeah. The lottery is what we remember her for, for many, many people, right. it's the only thing of hers they've ever read. Right. Do, do you think it was the downfall of her career, in a way, to, to write a story this strong? I hope not. I think that, you know, there's people, we talk about writers like Tennessee Williams or, you know, Arthur Miller, and some people, there, there are many people who have a major, major great work, and often a major great work early on. And there's always this question of, is it enough? Is it, you know, is it, does that overwhelm the rest of it? In a most contemporary sense, I think it's very hard today if you write something great early in your career because if you don't match it again, you fall hard and fast. Mm -hmm. I think probably, you know, in the 1940s up through the 1960s when she was writing, the curve was slightly different. And I think the lottery is what we remember because it it is iconic. It is in a way without being incredibly overly specific, it is incredibly clear and it does sustain itself. I think that the novels are a little bit different. They're a little less sharp in some ways. Um, And many of the other stories are in a way more subtle and more nuanced and not so powerful, but they are wonderful. So I think, Mm -hmm. 
you know, hopefully she's one of those people who becomes well-known in other ways over time. But, you know, it's also, I honestly think there may be something about the fact of her being a woman writer. You know, this story is not a story that is a classic story by a woman writer. Mm -hmm. And most of her work is quirky in that way. And if you think about it, honestly, what women writers from 1948 to 1965 do we still read? Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, like, I hate ever being the one to say things like that. But we read Cheever, we read Capote, we read Bello, we read, you know, tons of people. Of course, you've got me racking my brains. <laughs> I can't think of it. I never even, I mean, I didn't articulate it. So I said, yeah. I can't think of one. Yeah. That is a piece of it that where, what is the place for her? Thank you, A.M. Thanks, Deborah. A.M. Holmes' most recent novel is This Book Will Save Your Life, published by Viking. You can find 18 previous fiction podcasts at newyorker.com or in the iTunes store. Just type New Yorker into the search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.